Hello, everyone. Welcome to the War on Palestine podcast. This is episode two, recorded and published on October 31, 2023. I'm one of the co-hosts, Noura Erekat, joined by Ziad Aburrish and Bassam Haddad. We continue to offer this podcast as a digest of news that's happening on the ground. Our purpose is to mitigate the burnout for the activists, scholars, analysts, and people who care about what's going on over the past few weeks, and especially these past few days, which have been overwhelming in terms of just keeping track of what's happening and having the space to endure the emotional toll and the energy to continue to demand a ceasefire now. Our offering is to create a resource that consolidates and keeps track of several developments, including on the ground in Gaza and the rest of Palestine, at the United Nations and across a diplomatic front, in the geostrategic sense, with grassroots activism, as well as the black backlash to it across multiple geographies, as well as the US media landscape. While the impetus for this program was the dramatic escalation of Israel's violence in the Gaza Strip, we want to emphasize, as we have individually done so elsewhere, that Israel's campaign against the Gaza Strip is not Gaza-specific. It is Palestine-specific. In the end, what is happening in the Gaza Strip today is an intensification of the decades of settler colonialism and apartheid practices of the Israeli state, even if by many accounts one of its most violent iterations ever. Let us now turn to the details of this most recent iteration, and I'll invite Ziad. Since October 26, Israel has both intensified its aerial bombardment of the Gaza Strip, as well as initiated a series of ground incursions into the territory. This is on top of the total siege of the Strip, including effectively cutting off electricity and water since October 7. This has been accompanied by a 48-hour communication blackout in which Israel cut off all phone and internet service from the population. In the last several days, Israel has repeatedly ordered the remaining hospitals in Gaza to be evacuated or risk being considered accomplices to Hamas by the Israeli military, which is an effective death threat. As of October 30th, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs reports that the Israeli bombardment of the Gaza Strip since October 7th has killed over 8,300 Palestinians, injured over 21,000 Palestinians, and displaced over 1.4 million Palestinians. In addition, in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, Israeli military and settler violence have killed over 120 Palestinians, injured over 2,200 Palestinians, arrested over 1,000 Palestinians, and displaced over 1,000 Palestinians through confiscating or demolishing their homes. But these statistics don't account for many other things, including two important developments. Today, the Israeli military targeted the Jabalia refugee camp and leveled an entire block of buildings. The initial estimates report that the bombing of this area resulted in hundreds of Palestinians killed. Furthermore, the ground operations of Israel supported by aerial bombardment appear to point to an intention to separate northern Gaza from the rest of the Gaza Strip, either as a military strategy to particularly strangle northern Gaza or permanently separate it. There are those who problematically point to the symbolic entrance of aid trucks into Gaza since October 21st, which as its height represents 28 trucks per day. 
It's worth noting that prior to October 7th, approximately 80% of the over 2 million Palestinians living in Gaza were dependent on international aid for their daily livelihood. The 20 trucks entering Gaza each day right now account for less than 4% of the aid entering daily prior to October 7th. In other words, it does nothing to address the situation. Noura, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happening at the United Nations and on the diplomatic front? At the United Nations, the Jordanian-sponsored General Assembly resolution of October 27th remains the only major development. Despite meeting again on Sunday, October 30th, the Security Council again failed to issue a resolution. The sticking point continues to be the issue of calling for a ceasefire or even a temporary truce or a humanitarian pause, something that the United States has continued to reject in its effort to continue to pave a pathway for Israeli bombardment of Palestinians held captive in Gaza. The Israeli ambassador to the United Nations gave a speech in that meeting where he claimed that calling for a ceasefire is akin to calling off D-Day during World War II, which was the beginning of the Allied invasion of Nazi-occupied Europe, ultimately leading to the defeat of Germany. The Israeli ambassador has also called for a boycott of the United Nations for passing the resolution on, on Friday, October 27th. The ambassador's claim reflects both the growing international pressure for a ceasefire, including by the UN Secretary, Secretary General, and the growing statements critical of Israeli policy emanating from various UN agencies and officials. In fact, the office uh, director of the UN Human Rights Office in New York resigned in protest of the UN system's inaction and timidity. His resignation letter stated that, quote, this is a textbook case of genocide, thereby echoing the work of legal scholars, genocide scholars, and survivors of Bosnian, Rwandan, and other genocides who have said the same thing. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, visited the Egyptian side of the Rafah crossing with Gaza on October 29th. In his press conference, he asserted that the impeding of relief supplies to Gaza may constitute a crime under the ICC's jurisdiction. In a video posted online, the ICC prosecutor Khan also claimed that the ICC has active ongoing investigations, quote, in relation to the crimes allegedly committed in Israel on the 7th of October, and also in retaliation relation to the Gaza and the West Bank, end quote. On U.S. policy, the United States has continued to unconditionally support the Israeli assault on the captive Palestinians in Gaza, not to mention Palestinians elsewhere. Both Vice President Kamala Harris and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton entered the fray with definitive public statements refuting ceasefire. Harris claimed that the U.S. is providing advice, equipment, and diplomatic support to Israel and that, quote, the U.S. is not telling Israel what to do. Clinton, for her part, expressed the view that the Palestinian death toll of 8,000 was a reasonable price, echoing former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who said that half a million children in Iraq was worth the price of the U.S.'s invasion. Today, Tuesday, October 31st, the U.S. Senate Committee on Appropriations began hearings on U.S. President Joe Biden's proposed $109 billion aid package to Israel and Ukraine. During his remarks, Secretary of State Antony Blinken dismissed calls for a ceasefire as rewarding Hamas. During his testimony, several activists stormed the building to interrupt him and demand a ceasefire now. They accused Blinken of having blood on his hands. 
At the regional level, critical statements continue to emerge from states across the Middle East. While dynamics at the Lebanon-Israel border continue to be what some analysts describe as within the, quote, rules of the game established between Hezbollah and the Israeli military, Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah is scheduled to give a major speech this Friday. According to some journalists in the region, Hezbollah has given notice to the United States that if Israel does not cease its operations by the time of the speech of Nasrallah, he will announce a major escalation or intervention by his organization. All eyes are on the Friday speech to see what the potential new regional reverberations of Israel's onslaught on the Gaza Strip will be. Mass protests have continued in the United States, France, and the United Kingdom the last few days, underscoring the disjuncture between their government's policies and a significant portion of their population. In fact, a recent Gallup poll of U.S. voters indicates that for the first time in the 20-year history of the poll, there is greater sympathy for Palestinians than Israelis among U.S. Democratic voters. This chasm is most evident among young voters who refuse to believe the rhetoric of uh, President Biden, as well as the government, as they see images, harrowing images, of children pulled from out under the rubble, as they see craters left in the ground of where Jabalia refugee camp once was, and they hear an unconvincing rhetoric that this is the Palestinians' own fault. The attempt to demonize and criminalize those youth and others in mobilization continues. The U.S. Senate passed a resolution that condemned student groups and campus protests critical of Israel policies. President Biden vowed to mobilize law enforcement to work with university administrations to target U.S.-based student groups and even their social media and internet accounts. Various politicians and several Zionist and right-wing organizations have announced plans to litigate or have charges issued against individuals and organizations currently mobilizing in, uh, in critique of the Israeli assaults on Gaza and U.S. support for it. The ADL has gone so far as to suggest that they want to mobilize material support statute, part of the infrastructure of the war on terror, to forward criminal prosecutions. It's worth highlighting several actions that persist, popular actions that persist, despite this top-down repression that is intended to produce a chilling effect, that is intended to scare people from joining uh, massive protests across the globe. In San Francisco on Saturday, October 28th, activists shut down the Highway 101 and Bridge. Yesterday, on Monday, October 30th, a different group of activists in Boston shut down Elbit Systems, an Israel-based international defense electronics company, uh, the largest weapon supplier to Israel. Also, a statement was released by 2,000 Black voices demanding a ceasefire now, including Angela Davis, Cornell West, Mark Lamont Hill, No Name, Saul Williams, and Morrison Shire, amongst others. Tomorrow, on November 1st, there will be an event titled, But We Must Speak, hosted by the Palestine Festival literature featuring Michelle Alexander, Tana Hasi Coates, Muhammad Al-Kurd, Rashid Khaladi, and Hamid Sinno. We will now move to a segment uh, where uh, Nura and Ziad will have a conversation analyzing some of the, uh, the recent developments, including the uh, narrative of extraction of the uh, Israeli soldier. As a 
as a trained attorney, one of the major questions that I keep receiving is, what are the war crimes being committed? What are the possibilities of litigation? And in fact, this has come up also among news outlets who cannot deny the incredible number, the remarkable number of civilian deaths and harm. And so here I wanna emphasize um, that from what we understand, after 23 days, supposedly one soldier was extracted. Um, and here we need to be careful not to describe her as a hostage because as a soldier, she's a captive. She's a prisoner of war as opposed to the civilians who are classified as hostages. But if that is the case, if in fact it is this one soldier and that is the only military objective that Israel has achieved, then it, the entire argument still falls apart. What we do um, in, in analyzing um, military, uh, a military theater of war is to balance the military advantage achieved to the civilian harm caused. And it's quite evident that here, Israel had several military uh, objectives, including releasing the hostages, decimating Hamas, the extra, uh, turning Palestinians against Hamas, that this is their stated objectives. But if in three weeks, some three weeks and some change, all they've done is supposedly extract a single soldier, then the harm caused far exceeds it. They have killed over 8,000 Palestinians. They have killed three over 3,000 children. The majority of the casualties are children aged one through 15 years old. They have targeted a third of the hospitals in Gaza. They have targeted 29 UN schools, including eight that were providing shelter at the time. They have cut off electricity and fuel that threatens the life of newborn babies in NICU units. They have cut off access to clean hygiene. They have attacked humanitarian corridors. They have created the conditions of life that would limit a people's ability to continue, which is tantamount to genocide. Under the Genocide Convention, the main element is one of specific intent in order to destroy a people in whole or in part. And that is quite evident here, coming from the mouth of several um, top brass of military and political officials uh, in the Israeli government. Uh, so in addition to evidence of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, we have a, a condition that lends itself to plain, uh, plain prosecutions, what would be self-evident, I would imagine, but that would still require a tremendous amount of evidentiary documentation, which several legal teams are currently collecting, but Israel will surely impede as it has before. Absolutely, Noura. And I'd just like to add two points to what you're talking about here. The first is today after the horrendous uh, uh, attack on Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza, an IDF spokesperson was on CNN openly talking about how they intentionally dropped a missile on a densely populated area to score some type of victory against one Hamas official or figure. Um, and when they were asked, so you knew there were innocent civilians that would die when you made that decision, his response was, well, that's war, um, which is a clear and blatant disregard for uh, international humanitarian law and I hope can be used uh, as evidence in the kind of litigation and prosecution that you're talking about. 
I also think it's interesting that Hamas, a spokesperson, had actually come out with a statement today around the issue of that alleged Israeli soldier that the IDF was able to extract from Gaza in the last two days, claiming that the evidence for that is questionable, but that uh, as Hamas organization and military wing, as the Din al-Qassam Brigade, that they are attesting to the fact that all uh, kidnapped soldiers and hostages that they have in their possession are still within their possession and that if someone was extracted, they were extracted from a different group of Palestinians. I think which also sheds light over that there's a lot more to learn about what exactly happened on October 7th uh, in terms of the details of after the breach, um, but also that um, the IDF is clearly trying to claim any small victory amongst its apparent wish list of objectives in Gaza, despite the immense toll of death and destruction, including the displacement of over 1.4 million people. Ziad, I think that's really important to highlight that what this should reveal to us, you know, and what's really, it feels like a trap to discuss the allegations of war crimes and whatnot. I mean, just consider that the you know, the crime of apartheid is a crime against humanity and yet hasn't been prosecuted. It's the crime of, you know, prolonged military occupations that usurp the right of Palestinian self-determination, which is, you know, another international crime. It's the crime of collective punishment in the form of siege on uh, the Gaza Strip for now 17 years. And what you're highlighting for us is that you know, there's this this whole conversation happening about crimes and, and rules of engagement, when in fact, what Israel is doing and actually preparing for is far more insidious than that, which is a program of ethnic cleansing that is tantamount to genocide. So regardless of the rules of engagement, regardless of the fact that Israel doesn't actually have the right to self-defense against the territory that it occupies, but has a duty to protect those civilians or just end the occupation, um, is, is what we have here, that even the conversation about uh, laws of war, rules of engagement, war crimes and such, ends up masking this uh, far more insidious program that Israelis have told us themselves the effort to displace Palestinians, to empty the Gaza Strip. I mean, they're talking, they're telling us it's forced population transfer. They're telling us it's ethnic cleansing. They've offered uh, President Abdel Fattah Sisi a $20 billion aid package. These are above water conversations and negotiations that also contradict Israel's stated concerns for its hostages, which it has very, uh, far likely chance to to retrieve all of them in a prisoner exchange through diplomatic negotiations, as we've seen the first four prisoners all, or, or excuse me hostages already released, and yet is not availing itself of that possibility. There's a much more insidious project here, and one that we have to figure out how do we highlight that even as we highlight these ongoing violations of the laws of war, which are you know which are crimes, international crimes. Absolutely. And I'll be curious to see what is made of all these blatant public statements on the part of the Israeli military, uh, whether it's uh, giving orders for, you know, 1.4 million people to evacuate northern Gaza, whether it's giving orders that all 13 operating hospitals need to be evacuated, or even the position papers of different uh, uh, strategic study centers and apparently a leaked intelligence report that actually openly advocates what's called the Sinai plan, 
which is to forcibly relocate mm -hmm. as the best and optimum option of how to deal with the Gazan population. I think in the Mizgaf plan that was leaked, they described it as a rare opportunity to make good on the Sinai plan, which um, recently Lina Atallah in a Meda Masad article described to us as a 20 year old idea and concept that competed with the idea of unilateral disengagement, but faded at the time in 2005 and now is being uh, resurrected. So it's, it's, it's yet to be seen also how people respond to that. Yes, and I just want to express also our solidarity with Lina Atalla and the Madamasir team as they are facing a new wave of repression, censorship, and uh, prosecution on the part of the Egyptian government, which in no small part is a response to the work that they've been doing since October 7th to highlight what's happening in Gaza, what's happening on the Egyptian side of the Rafah border, and highlighting this broader history that you just talked about. Um, absolutely sharing my my solidarity, my love and my energy with the Meda Masr team and with Lina in particular, uh, who has shown utmost courage. I want to make one more comment about uh, what you've said, Ziad, regarding uh, what will be made of the statements made by Israeli officials. Well, one of the things that I've tried to show um, in my own work in studying Israel's uh, relationship to law and war is to demonstrate that in fact much of the time Israel is not getting away with war crimes right it's not it's not doing things and getting away with it but in fact is changing the laws of war in order to make legal and legitimate its war crimes so in fact what we saw at the beginning in 2005 during its disengagement plan when it defined Gaza as a hostile entity and then began, you know, the systematic onslaughts that we see continue to this day. Israel at that moment created a new category to call Gaza a hostile entity, which meant that it was neither occupied nor sovereign to evade any strictures of existing uh, laws of war. We also saw during this time, um, slightly before it, during the, the first, um, sorry, the, what's described as the second intifada, Israel describing its confrontation with Palestinians under its occupation as armed conflict short of war, again, to evade the strictures of either describing it as a civil war for people under their jurisdiction or as an international armed conflict as would be describing a nascent sovereign. And within that framework, Israel has changed definitions of who is a Palestinian civilian Right, So they've shrunk the category of Palestinian civilians to make it possible to kill them in far greater numbers and still say that it wasn't, um, that it was discriminate rather than indiscriminate. It's also changed how we understand proportionality. Uh, and, and so for one example of how we understand proportionality is to make it forward looking, that a military advantage is achieved if you can deter for um, uh, events or attacks in the future, which is a forward-looking analysis of proportionality, which would allow you to exert a tremendous amount more force than is actually proportionate to achieving the military advantage in that moment. All of this, and obviously I can go into much greater detail, but all of this describes just the ways that Israel has in fact taken the law very seriously to change the laws of war, to make these atrocities, somehow legal, which, you know, for those who don't care and just watch this and, and might even think throw Palestinians under the bus, something I like to remind them is nothing that Israel does 
in, in, in expanding state power and state violence in order to achieve its interests will be limited to the Palestinians, but will be in fact exported and replicated internationally. And so is a global danger. All of this should signal a global danger. Thank you, Nora and Ziad. This concludes our October 31st, 2023 episode of the War on Palestine podcast, a regular program of approximately 20 minutes comprising updates on what is happening on the ground in Palestine, as well as some focused analysis on how to make sense of those developments. Today's episode was hosted and produced by myself, Bassam Haddad. It was written and presented by Ziad Aburish and Noor Aliqat. Research for this program was conducted by Anas Al-Khatib, Mais Al-Alami, Sara Al-Yahya, Ranim Ayad, and Ala Atiyah Mitwalli. Also today, we held a teaching with uh, Omar Shakir and Julia Marini on uh, human rights, uh, Gaza and the war in Palestine. It's the third podcast in the Gaza and Context Collaborative Teaching Series. Omar Shakir is a director of Israel-Palestine Human Rights Watch, and uh, Julia is an officer at Al Mizan Center for Human Rights in Gaza. And you can actually uh, watch this podcast uh, teach in on uh, palestineincontext.org as well as all the other teachings that we have already recorded and there will be another coming up this Thursday at 1 p.m. on uh, Gaza in Geography with Nur Judah and Jihad Abu Salim 1 p.m. EST that is all the uh, matters uh, or activities that we are holding in this uh, larger collective including this podcast here War in Palestine can be found again on palestineincontext.org Thank you all for listening and hope to talk to you soon.